Conversations with Kerry, a series of audio interactions with people and things in my world that I find interesting. If you have any comments, queries, questions or feedback, you can find me as at K-H-O-A-T-H on Twitter or email me k-e-r-r-y at g-o-t-s-s dot net. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today, I will be talking about my introduction to computers. And for anybody who knows me, I've essentially been involved with computers since approximately 1986. Now, I grew up in a small country town. At the age of five, I was sent off to Sydney to go to school. And whilst I messed with some Braille devices in 1984, 1985, and I can't even remember what the device was back then, I wasn't familiar with technology. And this was the early days of accessible technology. Yes, there were things out before this. In fact, I think the Votrax PSS came out in 1977. I'd have to look up Wikipedia to check that. But my exposure to technology was somewhat limited. I was an 11-year-old child who sang country and western songs at awkward times in the library, didn't have a lot of friends, and didn't really know much about computers. I was your stereotypical blind person who grew up with a tape recorder and didn't know when to put it down and when it was appropriate and when it was not appropriate to record things, as many blind people were in a similar boat. And in year six, the end of year six, probably July year six, I apologize, my allergies are acting up a little bit today. My sixth grade teacher, Mr. Barrett, got his hands on an Echo speech synthesizer for the Apple IIe computer. And he obviously dug into the manuals that came with the device, probably a device that was worth about $1,500. And he installed it into one of the computers in the school. And you would basically put a five and a quarter inch floppy disk in this thing, boot it up, it would load the operating system into the Apple IIe. And a monotone robotic voice would come out of the computer and read aspects of what was in the user interface on that machine at the time. And I remember we had a number of disks that came with the system. We had a, a story disk that had a story on it, complete with pictures called Stone Soup. And then there was another disk that contained a article called From Tree to Table. And this was an article that would talk about how Fruit was grown in orchards, harvested, put into tins and into trucks and various other things, and eventually sold in the supermarket. And you would load this disc up, which was a single-sided five and a quarter inch, I believe they were single density discs. The system would load, you would get the file up on the screen, and you would press Open Apple Shift T. And once you did this, your story or experience would be read in an incredibly robotic monotonic voice or not many tones at all actually it probably wasn't monotonic there are probably youtube videos that sample the echo speech synthesizer i might actually try and find one to 
find a sample for this podcast. And in fact, 24 years later, there is a program called Mess Apple that will emulate the Echo speech synthesizer in software. But the fascinating thing with this first computer, when I was going through primary school at Yates Avenue School Dundas, one of the base skills that they taught us was touch typing because it was important that blind people knew how to touch type in order that we be able to type up documents and assignments and such things so that we could hand them in in an accessible format because most of my work at that time was done on the Perkins Brailler. And it was thought that if there wasn't a transcriber there that was available to write under the braille for the teacher marking the assessment, it would be a useful and worthwhile thing for me to be able to type. And as every stubborn young child, I hated typing. Couldn't stand it. And they would sit me down in front of the clunky typewriter, show me how to put the paper in the typewriter and how to change the ribbon. And I would sit there learning the QWERTY keyboard. And we'd go from left to right, left to right, left to right. Then a random drill of how to learn the QWERTY keyboard. Now, when the Apple IIe arrived in the classroom, it revolutionized my ability to read back what was on the computer screen. For the first time ever, I could hear the text that I had typed into the computer and be able to listen to and read back what I had typed. And I think it took about an hour. My typing speed went from five words a minute to 20 words a minute. And it was ultimately decided that it would be advisable for me to get a talking note-taking computer. This was 1987, actually. It was 1987 that all this happened. And they applied for me to trial a Keynote XL, which was an Epson HX20 expanded out to 84K of memory. That's 84 kilobytes. It had an Epson HX20 with a Symphonics speech module attached to the left-hand side of the computer. And I remember the week that I got to trial, or I think it was actually two weeks, they'd managed to get an extra week's trial for me, the Keynote XL, they put the computer in front of me. Very first time I had seen a talking computer that wasn't the Apple IIe. And they turned it on and it said, Keynote, keyword, version 1.2, 84K, Wayne Wenyu. And I said, what's a Wayne Wenyu? And Mr. Barrett told me that it was actually saying main menu. But because my ears weren't used to the speech synthesizer at the time, for about the first five minutes, we could hit this button that he showed me to go back to the Wayne menu. And he showed me the basics of the computer, how to drive the word processor, how to load and save files from the 360K double density, three and a half inch disks that connected to this machine via a serial interface floppy drive that also had a battery in it. And I began to learn how to take care of nickel cadmium rechargeable batteries because I had to charge the computer if I was gonna run it on batteries and how to type up my work on the computer. And we had a special serial to parallel converter that we would plug into the serial port of the Epson HX20 
we would set the serial parameters to 48N2B. I sadly can still remember the encoding of those serial parameters. Suffice it to say, it talked to the serial to parallel converter at 4,800 bits per second, and it allowed you to print the stuff that you had typed up into this computer and print it out to the BMC80 dot matrix printer that I had previously used with the Wilson braille to print converter up to that point sort of 85, 86, 87, we connected that printer into the Keynote XL and I was able to type up for the first time and print schoolwork. Now, the Epson HX20 or the Keynote XL as it was known was pretty good at word processing. It had an exceedingly slow spell check that actually required you to insert the spell check disk because there wasn't enough memory in the Epson to hold the spell check dictionary. So it actually had to seek and retrieve the words that it wanted off the dictionary disk so that you could actually check the spelling of a document. The computer was a fairly boxy device. It ran for about eight hours from its internal batteries. It had no number pad, basically had an 83 or an 84 key keyboard. The bottom right-hand key at the very bottom right-hand side of the keyboard was known as a block key, or uh, as they called it, an alt key. And that key was used to get certain characters such as the single quote and the tilde, which were not mapped onto the regular layout. In Epson HX Basic, it was also used as a font key to be able to get at various graphic characters on the machine. But the machine had a liquid crystal display that was 20 characters wide and four lines high. If you were using the keyword software, it would tend to place one line of text on the LCD. However, on the basic interpreter, it would place four lines of text on the screen. Next to the screen was a 20 cell wide docket style dot matrix printer with a tiny, tiny ribbon cartridge. And in fact, if you were on the Move and Mobile, there was a roll of docket paper in the back of the computer and you could actually print out your assignments on the inbuilt printer and hand them in on this paper docket tape. And in certain situations, the assignments could be marked and corrected and checked. After I had trialed the initial unit of the computer and I had spent most of my waking hours learning most of the nooks and crannies of the machine, I'd read through the user guide multiple times, I'd been confused and mystified by the beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code interpreter that apparently was used for programming. And I'd been in and out of the basic interpreter and I had written up some documents and written up some stories and loaded and saved files to disk. I remember that I was so used to hearing the robotic speech from the Symphonics speech card that as I drifted off to sleep for most of the time that week, I could still hear the speech synthesizer saying period in my head at the end of sentences. It's a bit like the same experience you get when you play Tetris for too long or another repetitive graphical computer game. Once the trial unit was returned, it was decided that this unit would be suitable for my schooling in year six. And they purchased at the price of $4,250. 
the Keynote XL, its floppy drive, power adapter, and the couple of system disks that came with that machine. And I used that computer probably through until about 1989. The, the money for the computer was actually paid for by the Narrabri and We War Lions Club. They had run a BMX bikeathon back in 1982 to raise money for my schooling and education, which is one of the things that the Lions Club does. They do excellent work all over the world and If you have spare money, you should absolutely donate to the Lions Club. They do incredible work. I I cannot thank them enough for the trust fund that allowed me to acquire equipment and devices that I needed for my education. Now, interesting things about the Keynote XL. There was no backlighting in the liquid crystal display. And in fact, if you looked at the liquid crystal display from the wrong angle... It was almost invisible because on top of the liquid crystal display to make it more readable was a polarizing filter. And on the side of the machine was a wheel that you could twist called view angle. And that would change the impact of the polarizing filter to make the screen more viewable depending on which way you were looking at the computer from. Interestingly enough... The machine had a number of 3.5mm audio jacks on the right-hand side underneath that were an interface to an audio tape deck. And you could load and save basic programs and data to and from audio tapes. So I had patch leads and I had a tape recorder and I stored my programming experiments because I was learning basic on cassettes, actual audio compact cassettes, standard audio compact cassettes. And there was also an attachment for a barcode scanner, but I never saw the barcode scanner and I never saw how that worked and what piece of software drove it. But apparently there was a barcode scanner that you could connect into this computer. But the 3.5 mil connectors for the tape, you had an output connector and you had an input connector that were 3.5 mil. They were actually indented back about a quarter of an inch inside these holes so the only cable you could fit into them was a very thin 3.5 mil jack so think about something like the cable on phone earbuds or the old ear pods before they became lightning and you would wire this into the tape deck and when you were ready there was a command that you could type to load and save programs and you would essentially line the tape up, get it ready to go, unpause the tape deck, run the command, and have the computer save the data or load the data from the cassette. I'm not exactly sure at what speed the data was sent to and from the cassettes. I think it was around about 4,800 bits per second. It certainly wasn't fast, but it certainly wasn't as slow as some of the things I'd seen, like the Commodore 64 or the VIC-20. Now... There was also a 2.5mm jack, and that was tagged REM for remote. And if you were in BASIC, there were actually two commands, motor on and motor off, that would open and close a small relay inside the Epson HX20. And you would connect a 2.5mm to 2.5mm cable from the Epson to the 
remote jack of the tape recorder. Some tape recorders had a remote control jack where you would actually put a wired switch on there and you could open and close the switch to start and stop the tape recorder. Uh, 1987, I think it was, I discovered that Mr. Bloom had an Epson HX20. And it wasn't very well maintained and he didn't really use it. So he ended up donating it. And on the top right hand corner of the Epson HX20 was a micro cassette data drive. And I'd always wondered why there was a blank plastic box that you could slide off the top right hand corner of the Epson HX20 if you slid the lever on the right hand side. But it turned out that if you slid the lever on the right hand back edge, the blank plastic cover would be pushed aside and you could take off this box and replace it with a micro cassette drive. And I remember getting access to this drive and slotting it into the right hand side of the Epson HX20. And I've got to say, I thought I was pretty hot stuff. I could save and load basic programs from micro cassettes. And in fact, if I still think back now, even though it's been many, many years, I can still remember the noises that that micro cassette made as it operated. And the Epson HX20 or the Keynote XL, depending on how you looked at it, was basically the first computer that got me into computers and information technology. I spent hundreds of hours learning every nook and cranny of that operating system. I learned to exploit all of the errors and weaknesses of the computer. And whilst it wasn't a very chivalrous thing to do, I discovered that if you did an um, exec ampersand D043 in BASIC, you could actually make the computer repeat its charge battery message. So halfway through Friday afternoon last period, when I decided that I didn't want to do any work, I pulled this trick and uh, showed the teacher that, in fact, the uh, battery on this system was, in fact, flat. Now, interestingly enough, the power switch on the right-hand side of the HX20 was a logic switch. And in fact, when the computer crashed, flicking the power switch off and on would do nothing to unlatch the computer. And in fact, if you reached back to the back right-hand corner on the right-hand side of the machine, you would actually turn the power switch off and then press the reset button at the back right-hand corner on the bottom of the case. And that would reset the computer and then you could turn the power switch back on and boot it up again. So it was certainly an odd machine with lots of quirks, but I basically worked with that machine from 1987 through to, I think, 1990 or 1989 at least. So basically two and a half years of, or half a year of year six, and then year seven and year eight. Sadly, I was peer pressured into doing various pranks with my talking computer and sadly whilst I'm not proud of it I programmed my computer to call a girl by the name of Jenny a quite derogatory tone in a robotic voice uh, a lot of the class thought it was funny I regretted my actions and I ended up apologizing to Jenny afterwards and saying that it was a bit of fun and people had put me up to it and I was terribly sorry and I didn't really think she was that at all Luckily for me, she accepted my apology and um, we were at least on speaking terms after that. And it was one of those things that I did for a, for a dare. And I think if I'd had my time over again, I wouldn't have actually gone through with that because it wasn't a nice thing to do. 
The computer always got me attention and stuff in the playground. Kids were always interested in playing with the computer and seeing what the computer could do. The computer actually had two cases. It had a plastic carrying case that would carry the Epson HX20 and just the HX20. And there was a square metal carrying case that they paid an extra $250 for that would actually carry the Epson HX20, the floppy drive, and the charger, which could be used to power either the computer or the floppy drive. And the floppy drive actually had a power switch, so before you used the floppy drive, you would actually have to turn it on. And interestingly enough, the adapter for the Epson HX20 was 6 volts DC, 500 milliamps, center positive. I think it was a 2.5 slash 1.5 mil barrel connector. In 2014, I still remember the specifications of the AC adapter because I ended up losing the AC adapter and having to replace it with something compatible from Tandy Electronics. And we had to put the adapter together and make the computer work again. Now, that's probably enough information about the Keynote XL, Epson HX20. I don't know whether anybody wants to know any more about that computer. It was certainly a formative experience in my computing career, and it got me started in information technology and computers. Now, obviously, being a mildly obsessive person as I am, I spent many hours on the computer, a bit like kids in this generation and their video games and their phones. And I used to spend the majority of my time playing with this computer and writing basic programs and loading and saving them. And I remember co-opting all of the members of my family to read me various sections out of the manuals that came with that computer. And it had a user guide for the word processor, which I had in electronic format. So I didn't need anybody to read that particular manual, but it was a ring bound book that had the user guide for the keyword word processor. And then there was a manual for the basic interpreter and my auntie Sue and my mum and my brother and my sister and my auntie Deb and anybody else I could coerce would read me passages out of that basic manual so that I would be able to learn how to program the Epson HX20. And it's interesting to note that I would not gain access to a scanner with optical character recognition until 1992 when they purchased the Robotron TR320 scanner. And that would be the first time that I could independently read printed material without sighted help. Well, I do hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I don't know whether these are the styles of podcasts that people like. Chats from my memories of 1986 and 1987, interesting listening material. Or are they like watching grass grow? Do you find the advancement of accessible technology interesting and exciting? Or dull, boring and uninteresting? Get in touch with me, K-H-O-A-T-H on Twitter or Kerry, K-E-R-R-Y, at G-O-T-S-S dot net via email and tell me what you thought of the podcast. Interesting, not so cool, exciting, not so exciting. And are we at all interested in any other details about the Keynote XL? Or was that certainly enough information for one podcast? Thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you next episode.